All right, you all. So outline on the five M's, and Brenda did it on cardstock. Ah, I know. I, I asked if she would put wax, my wax seal on that. I mean, this makes this really fancy. I mean, wow. That's how important this teaching is. She must have felt like, oh, this is one that's worth doing cardstock for. The other ones, nah. <laughs> yeah, she's like, there was cardstock in there. I was like, I'm sure it wasn't Madeline who did that. That's awesome. Okay, guys, going over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, reading 1 to 12. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. All right, a, a justly so often taught section of Scripture. And even how you teach the scripture has a lot to do with how you think about church and your relationship to church. So as I teach on this, I'm, I'm very indebted to a, uh, a non-sacramental thinker, Alan Hirsch, who was one of the leaders in the emergence movement you know, 20 years ago and is a real scholar and missiologist uh, who does not hold the same perspective. He and I have actually had an argument about church in this very room. He spoke at Anglican 1000 that we hosted several years ago and gave a great lecture, but definitely argues strongly for ecclesiology coming from missiology, and you all know I would hold a different position than that, and we had a great dialogue together about that, and I so appreciate having a chance to engage uh, a mind as fine as Alan Hirsch's and a leader as tested as Alan Hirsch, so I'm really thankful for him. I've learned a lot from him, much of what I'm teaching on he, he got me started on thinking about it, but my challenge after reading Alan was, um, this is my responsibility, not Alan's, how do I understand this within the context of a sacramental church and of a Catholic ecclesiology, which I can use that word I think, with you guys after Canon Stevens so explained it so well. Um, again, I'm, I'm careful how I use the language of Catholic 
just because it, it trips wires for Roman Catholics, it trips wires for evangelicals. Um, and yet the word's so good, it is so important, and it's creedal. We believe in the one holy Catholic apostolic church. Um, it's so important, the word's so important that I'm, I'm using it more and more, even though the risk is there. So, what's a Catholic perspective, um, and what's a revival perspective on Ephesians chapter 4? So, Years ago, we put this building together um, to become a church, and in doing so, I was working with architects, and I was working with engineers all the time. They were in our meetings, they informed all of our decisions, because you had to have both to get to where we got to with this building being repurposed for church. And the architects were so fun to sit with. They were artistic, they were designing, they were dreaming, and they, they really engaged that sense of what could this be? They, were, they, they, just, they just had that ability. The engineers, of course, were so amazing because they would come in and say, that's exciting. Here's how I'll make that design happen. And there was a certain joy being with the engineers, a certain joy being with the architects. The five S's really give you an architecture. They, they, they give you the design of the church and they, they inspire. When, when I teach on the five S's, I think there's kind of an inspirational sense of the church could be this, and we're looking going, all five S's could be a part of the church, and our, our hearts are stirred. When I teach on the five M's, I'm teaching not so much on the architecture, but the engineering. The five M's is how the five S's happen, how they actually happen. And the way anything actually happens in the church is, yes, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, but yes, 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 by the agency of Holy Spirit people who basically Paul calls us charismata people, gift people, spirit people, is actually the literal translation in 1 Corinthians that Paul calls us. So you have to have the Holy Spirit in his people. That's how things happen. I know that's obvious to say, but so much church and so many ministries are led as if that wasn't the case, that actually the way you get changed is not even through a great communication platform, and you know we invest a lot in that resurrection, you will not get lasting change through a great communication platform. You will get it through people. And that is Paul's very point here where he takes one of the most well-known phrases in all of the scriptures, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So critical to an engineering. Okay, Ephesians 4 lists out five ministries of the church. They can be understood as positions, the different positions, but they are better interpreted as ministry gifts that are given to the church. Ephesians 4, verse 8, Jesus gives gifts to people, to men. So these are ministry gifts. These, these, these are charisms, they're graces, they're gifts, all those words being synonymous in the language of the, uh, of the New Testament. Those who may work in these areas or even these positions are given these gifts to give them away, to equip the people of God in these five areas of ministry for the work of the ministry. So I call them the five ministries. Yes, there are five ministers that are listed out there in verse 11. Absolutely. And that gets some of the Mark's question that I hope I'll do a job addressing, and then we'll talk about it more. There are five ministers that operate in these ministries. Um, but the key in this passage is not so much the ministers, although they're listed and important, it's, it's, it's where it's going. They're subjects in verse 11 to the sentence, the object of the sentence are the saints, to equip the saints. That's the way the sentence is actually grammatically structured. You've got subjects, 
all these different people. You have a verb, equip, and then you have the object of the verb, the saints. If you were sentence diagramming this, you'll see that there's great emphasis on where is the sentence going. It's going toward the saints. It's going toward the ministry, the gifts given to the saints. And our Lord operated in all five ministries. We often talk about being prophet, priest, and king, but he was also evangelist. He was certainly the great apostle. He was a good shepherd. He's the great teacher. He has all these ministries. And so because our Lord has all these ministries, there is a way in which in our attempt to be like him, we hear teachings in all these ministries that we might incorporate all of them into our lives. And that isn't some kind of an achievement oriented, I got to get all five in my life. That's a Jesus oriented to be like the Lord means that I am open to being evangelistic. I'm open to being prophetic. I'm open to being apostolic. I'm open to all these things. And that's how I'd like you to think about them as I go through them. I'm also expecting that as I go through them, you will necessarily reflect on what ministries have already been evidenced in your life, in your ministry, um, which ones still need to be evidenced, and how you understand. So first see them through the lens of Jesus, then see them through the lens of your ministry. And then what we're going to do, not next week because we're off, but the week after that, um, is we're going to workshop them. Oh, I think it's the week after that. Um, it's, it's on our, on our syllabus. We'll workshop these five M's. I'll tell you about, about what I, So I'm going to want you to do some homework um, on the five M's and bring them to our, our next time together. For the work of revival, we have to understand these five ministries and we have to discern who are those, who are those ministers that have these ministries that can help equip us. Again, I want to always encourage you to be proactive in that. Who's got prophetic gifts that I can learn from? Who's got evangelistic gifts that I can get under and learn from? I think often we kind of wait for them to come and find us. Go find them. See who's got fruit like that and learn from them. Um, it doesn't have to even be an intentional meeting. Just if you've got, I mean, you know, maximize your conversations all the time, by the way. So, for example, we'll do um, the Christmas volunteer breakfast. If you have opportunities to identify people that are there sitting around having lunch or breakfast at that point, everyone's just kind of socializing for it's kind of a soft 40 minutes of socializing, I have learned to maximize those times. So get with somebody you want to learn something from. Um, be aware of somebody you can, you, you can understand it. Uh, Dr. Thomas Boehm, very apostolic. You want to learn the apostolic? Spend time with Dr. Boehm. Get to know him. He'll be just sitting there with his kids. Talk to him at that breakfast. I mean, Find people like this. They're all throughout the church who have these gifts. Okay, the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the teaching, and pastoring. Now, I would break these areas, and this is kind of my own thinking, so this doesn't have a ton of precedent, but I would break these two areas into two general categories, one being the catalytic and one being the building. The first three being what I would call catalytic ministries within the five M's, apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic. The last two being building ministries. Why I want to separate those for the sake of this teaching is that the revival church has to have both. So sometimes we think, oh, you need the catalytic, or we think you need the building. They all need each other. The catalytic sparks new works. When catalytic ministries are active, new things happen, and needed initiatives creatively emerge. So you will see this. This is like, this is one of the things that's just part of a catalytic culture is that there are new things, interesting things, needed things, creatively emerging. Part of the catalytic is initiative. Part of being a shepherd and a teacher is actually being responsive. There's a beautiful responsiveness to the shepherd and the teacher. They also initiate. There's dynamism here. Of course there is. 
But in the catalytic, there's a kind of initiation of what could be, what could happen. Certainly, the Apostle Paul catalyzed ministry as he realized, I have a calling to reach the Gentiles. He visits Philippi, and he meets Lydia, another catalytic leader. Lydia is very likely apostolic. And the two of them work together to plant a church in her home. That's like a few sentences there, and we think, oh, seller of purple, how interesting. Well, yeah, I think that's actually important. She was involved in commerce and, and that type of thing. But what's more interesting is how catalytic she was. Was she entrepreneurial or catalytic? Yes, probably. We don't know for sure. But we do know she helped start a church. We I mean, know she hosted it. Wow, that's a catalytic gift. There's an apostolic gift. Another question. So how does that interact with the apostolic, right? Here's the apostle Paul working with an apostolic person. Um, well, the, the apostolic find each other, by the way. And the Holy Spirit brings the apostolic together. Um, often, something starting, by the way, apostolically will be brought together to get something, something significantly kind of new started. Barnabas, on the other hand, that son of encouragement, his nickname, fulfills the critical work of building. And by the way, the gift of encouragement is a building gift. It builds somebody up, it edifies, right? edification is building. But it's also a gift of encouragement can build entire ministries. He's pastoring. He's teaching. He builds up Paul. He builds up John Mark. He builds up other churches. Now, certain denominations and traditions will tend to favor the catalytic, or they'll tend to favor the builder. For revival of word and sacrament, we must fight for both. We have to fight for both. So, so much of what's going on in the evangelical world, from my perspective, Peter and Rachel could fill this out better. In the Middle East, for example, there's a whole lot of catalytic going on in the Middle East right now. Um, you've got the disciple-making movements that are taking hold. Thanks be to God. It seems like the Holy Spirit's doing something new in our day among the Middle Eastern peoples and Muslim peoples. So you have a whole lot of catalytic energy, a whole lot of catalytic excitement, and, and rightly so. You also have a whole lot of people looking back at the West going, that Western church, they're so stuck they're so, you know, uh, old. They're so non-dynamic, you know. This is classic. This is classic. And you've got Westerners hearing about, for example, what's called DMM, the disciple-making movement. They're going, that's so unmoored. That seems so decentralized. That doesn't seem... This, I'm just using one example of how the builders and the catalysts, they will critique each other all day long. For revival, we have to have both. And in our movements, we want both. Yeah, they want both. No, it's good. Okay, the apostolic. Paul puts the apostle first. And he does this not just here, but in other parts of the scriptures too, explicit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First, the apostle. All right. This is not a priority of value, but a priority of strategy. But there is a priority here. We, we do have to ask, when Paul's really clear, first, why did he write first? I'm not sure I know. I'm going to put forth my best thinking at this point that I maintain the, the, the opportunity to change as I think about it more and pray about it more. But I think it's a priority of strategy. The apostolic ministry comes first because the kingdom needs this ministry to be first into places of need. Which, for example, one reason why we have so many apostolic Catholic folks being drawn into the work of the Middle East. The need there is greater than any need anywhere else in the world in terms of 1040 window. 
Okay, before I can say more about this, let me just kind of elucidate this most complex of the ministries. Of all those ministries, the apostolic is the most complex. I would argue there's three levels or manifestations to the apostolic ministry. Okay? The first is the unrepeatable apostolic. The unrepeatable. The second is the embodied. The third is the people of God. Okay? So there's the unrepeatable, the embodied, and the people of God. The unrepeatable apostolic is taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, where apostles and prophets are described as the very foundation of the church. This is unrepeatable. You can't repeat a foundation. Those aren't, those are, that is the thing you multiply. You don't multiply foundations in the same way. They're set in place. Paul's referring to the riches of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets. That's his shorthand. The Tanakh, as it would be called. As well as the new Jewish leaders who were called the 12 disciples, but are now known as the apostles. So you have the prophets and the apostles, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Now, of course, the New Testament is being written at that point. I mean, it's, it's happening under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the apostles are the ones responsible for that. These leaders and their resultant writings, the New Testament, form the unrepeatable foundation of the church. No one will be an apostle or prophet like that again. And that's actually very important to be clear about these prophets and apostles catalyzed the people of God with the Word of God. The Word of God is the ultimate catalyst. It came before any prophet. It came before any apostle. And ultimately, he's talking about the, the power of the Word of God as the foundation of the church. The embodied apostolic, exactly what we were discussing during our snack time, refers to the tradition seen in Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Anglicanism, whereby the bishop and his priests in communion with him are successors of the original apostolic band. Herein lies the belief that there's been a succession of the unrepeatable apostles. You have the unrepeatable apostles, unique representing the 12 tribes of Israel, unrepeatable. But, out, but from them is a succession that stems from them. The succession is both word and sacrament. Think Anglicanly. Foremost, it must be a continuance of the teaching of the word of God. Whenever this is abandoned, so too is apostolic power, not the apostolic office, to Lydia's excellent question. The apostolic office cannot be abandoned. It's been set into place. But the power of that office can be abandoned if there's an abandonment of the power of the Word of God. I don't have time to get into a, a concept ex operate, but the idea behind it is that the office, again, is maintained. And even the ministry office is maintained. If you have a bishop who's not operating in the power of the Holy Spirit because they've abandoned their office and they lay hands on somebody for confirmation, that person is still confirmed. That, person, that, that priest was still ordained. Um, and that was very important to maintain some sense of, of, of continuity and some sense of order, even amidst the disorder of the human heart. Secondly, this succession is one that is sacramental as one bishop from one generation lays hands on another bishop and in doing so, catalyzes a chain of empowered leadership for the church. I can only give you personal testimony here um, that without question, and it doesn't always work this way, it wasn't this way in my, in my priestly ordination, but without question, the, one of the most powerful spiritual encounters of my life was when 11 bishops laid hands on me to become a bishop. I will never, ever forget that. There was something in the spirit so powerful at that point. I just give personal testimony. Um, it's why I'm going this weekend um, when I really probably shouldn't be, but uh, we're ordaining a bishop 
uh, consecrating a bishop in Fort Worth, Texas. And it's part of the college and of being in unity with him that I will go and be one of the bishops who will lay hands on him. And then his ordination document will be set before us. We all will have our Episcopal seals with us, old school. There will be a candle lit and it will be dropped with wax upon each of that. And we will stamp our seals and it just says mine is and sign our name Stuart Upper Midwest with my C. That, that will be part of that laying on of hands, of taking seriously this very important succession. The people of God apostolic, the third. This refers to the saints, verse 12 of Ephesians 4, who are called to minister in ways that spark new work. This is where you get a marrying mark in our movement of the charismatic, the Pentecostal, with the Catholic. You have a real marrying here. And I think of probably all the three great tradition traditions, we're probably the most comfortable with this, um, although the Roman Catholics have a, an understanding of the apostolate. Um, you're probably familiar with that, Lydia, from your work, but apostolates are basically a way to name apostolic work done by non-bishops. It's a great concept. Um, a lay person can have an apostolate, um, and it's a ministry, it's a special charism that catalyzes something. And so we see it in the Roman church as well, just different language. Um, but very, very similar. Again, I'm always looking. Is this in Rome? Is this in the East? I want to make sure that I'm not doing something new. Um, the heart of the apostolic is to start new cultures. So what an apostolic ministry does, because different folks catalyze different things. And prophets catalyze, and evangelists catalyze, and shepherds and teachers also catalyze. They primarily build, but they also catalyze. But what an apostolic does is it catalyzes a culture. So the apostolic's like, it's a gift to catalyze you know, so this could be even like an apostolic gift on a retreat. If you have a, if you have a retreat leader who's apostolic, they will create a sense that I'm in a, I'm in a culture for this weekend. Um, I'm not just at a retreat going through a great teaching situation. I'm actually part of a culture. Um, so that, that's a gift in the Catherine and I. I have the apostolic. She has strong prophetic. And you, we, so we catalyze that together. So when we do something like we have our clergy retreats, amazing every year. That's basically, we, we are catalyzing an ecosystem there. Um, right now with Fully Alive, what we're trying to catalyze, we feel like God's asked us to catalyze as a prophetic ministry and apostolic ministry, is we're catalyzing a culture of transformation and identity in Jesus. We're catalyzing something like that. So the apostolic works that way. So it can often look like it becomes its own kind of ministry sometimes when apostolic is at work. In my case, I was called with other apostolic leaders to catalyze a diocese. But it can also look like catalyzing a small group. It can look like you're creating a culture there. Now, you may think, well, is it like catalyzing a relationship? No, that's more actually evangelistic. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. It's, it is culture. It can be small culture, large culture, but it's catalyzing something that has relationships and interchangeability of connections and, and back and forths. The apostolic is a sent ministry. The root meaning of the word apostolos from the Greek is sent, where a man or a woman is sent to a place, whether geographically or spiritually, that needs a kingdom culture started. Again, another reason why we're seeing so much apostolic activity in the Middle East is because it's, it's missionaries, it's folks that were sent. You all have an apostolic calling. We would, we would identify you with having a people of God, apostolic calling. The missionary calling is one of the main ways that the apostolic has worked its way out in the evangelical tradition. It's probably like the, 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 and interestingly enough, that's often where they felt like they had the freedom to do what they were called to do as apostles. Because you, you had you know, often rigid church structures within the evangelical world, as in other ecclesial worlds, the apostolic went, I can't really do my thing here, and I, I have to be obedient to God, I'll go to the mission field. So some apostolic folks are called to the mission field because they were called to a certain country, they were called overseas. Others, 
the apostolic calling called them, and then they went overseas. Does that make sense? And in our evangelical tradition, that's where you have a lot of things. Which is another reason why I so encourage reading of missionary biographies, because in reading missionary biographies in our evangelical tradition, you're going to engage the apostolic. Okay. The apostolic ministry does not require ordination, but it does require courage. Pioneering, persevering, creativity are some of the attributes needed in these leaders. Now, unless this apostolic ministry is released, revival can only go so far. For a full revival and for a creative multiplication of churches, there must be multiple apostolic leaders multiplying more apostolic leaders. The cultures created by apostolic leaders operate more like ecosystems than like machines. They support the exercise of interdependent relationships, acting in creativity, more than the mechanics of policies and procedures. When you begin to see policies and procedures leading a ministry or leading a church or leading a diocese, you are seeing the eclipsing of the apostolic and the emergence of the mechanical. Policies, procedures, canons are critical to the life of the church, but they can't lead. They can't lead, or leadership will stop. Or leadership will stop. Now, to be sure, ecosystems must act with order, and the apostolic must find shepherds and teachers especially who will build these things. And this isn't giving them a junior varsity job. This is going, unless you build these things, my apostolic ministry is completely forfeited. And indeed, the apostolic, if it's operating well, doesn't do so again like in a kind of denigrating way or, you know, kind of indulgent of them way. It does it in a way that deeply knows I can't fulfill Jesus' work without your work. And there's deep affection. And affection marks the apostle. One of the key attributes of the true apostolic will be there'll be affection. There'll be warmth. Sometimes the apostolic, again, and I'll get into this, I'll get into this, but it gets frustrated. It's like, ah, oh, nobody else is doing this work, you know? And when I, when I see that, I go, that, that doesn't mean it's not apostolic, but it means it's an apostolic that needs more maturing. Because the apostolic has a deep affection um, for all parts of the church. This affection is not mere feelings. It's a, de- it's a deeply developed selflessness that seeks the success and flourishing of others, especially spiritual sons and daughters. So while the apostolic initially is up front and initially, let's catalyze this, let's build this, let's go do this, let's rally, the apostolic, if it's true apostolic, will begin to, 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 to pull back. So Because it has to get up front first, and plant, and, and, and inaugurate, and, 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 and pioneer. But what the episode will do is it will pull back. Um, I mean, have you ever noticed, that, I love this in the Lord Eagles Wilder books, how Paul is a pretty minor character. I mean, he's wonderful when he's there, but he's not major. It's, it's Laura, it's Mary, it's, you know, it's the other siblings. Um, that's really who the hero of this is. But of course, there have been no Laura or Mary, and they're all of their 19th century adventures without Ma and Pa, Right? But rightly so, like they let out, they left Wisconsin, Little House in the Big Woods, they pioneered, and as they pioneered, they actually recede in the stories, and Mary comes forward, and Laura comes forward in the stories. That's an example of the apostolic. The apostolic has to know, too, when do I pull back? And this, this is such, this is missiology. It's like, when do I pull back, and nationals are doing more, but we don't have to be in front, and they are not ready to do that. I mean, that's all part of the apostolic question and dynamic when, you, when you're doing apostolic work. The prophetic. 
the story was told at the house orientation retreat, but not everybody was there, so I want to tell the story again because it's very important to me that my next generation carries the story. You need to know the story as part of the foundation of our movement. So I'm going to tell it again. Several years ago, uh, moved by a God-given conviction, my brother and sister-in-law, uh, Bo and Molly, Christian and Molly, set out to plant a church. So they sought discernment. They went through assessments. They did trainings with the evangelical world. We didn't have any assessments. And to the amazement of all of us who knew them and saw calling in their lives, not one door opened. We were bewildered. They were so gifted. They were so mature. They seemed destined to plant and plant well. And yet their church planting assessment panel gave them a tepid evaluation, kind of wilting in its dearth of enthusiasm. Then they suffered a poignant loss in their family. They lost uh, their second son who was stillborn. While they were at a church planting conference in California, they lost Bryce. And it just felt like, it was like this is it. This is what we feel like. We feel pregnant but stillborn. It was a, just a deep, deep heartbreak in our family. So this dream they had of planting a church really began to fade. So in the midst of this season of, I, I guess we're not going to plant church. I guess you know, we, we didn't have this second son. My brother and I were at a missions conference together. It was an early Anglican mission, missions conference. And there's emphasis on church planting. And the morning worship session was beginning when a lovely older woman hesitatingly interrupted us. And she said, excuse me, may I speak to you? Motioning to my brother. And she leaned over and she told him a dream she'd had the night before. In the dream, she said, I saw a young man. And he was wearing a flannel shirt, just like the flannel shirt that you are wearing today. Exactly the same pattern. And the Lord said to me in the dream, tomorrow, I want you to find a young man wearing this shirt. And I want you to tell him this. His dream is not dead. Just tell him that. Just deliver it. So in this electric moment, she shares with my brother. Uh, my brother, who is not quick to express his emotions, just broke down. He just wept. I wept. I was so glad I was there for that moment. Um, the prophetic, it catalyzed, it catalyzed in that moment a move of faith in my brother's heart and Molly's heart to say, we have heard the Lord. We are to go forward. We did all the right assessment process. We did everything that we should do. And we should do these things. And we will do assessment and boot camp for those of you that are um, in a church plant. And D. Gregory House is in itself an assessment. And the residency is this. All those things are really good. But the prophetic had to come in and catalyze a promise that God had given them. The Apostle Paul describes the experience of an unbeliever who hears prophecy as one of such amazement that he falls on his face and says, God is really among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. What happens in prophecy is we have a sense that God is among us. That all of a sudden things get a little more electric, a little more focused, a little more vivid. God is here. The Word of God is here. And I'll teach you guys on both how to prophesy to one another and receive prophetic words yourself and also teach you on how to do public prophecy in the winter. But prophecy primarily catalyzes this. The love of God. The greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, therefore prophesy. He goes right from 13, 13 to 14, 1. The greatest of these is love, therefore prophesy. It's in prophecy that we catalyze the love of God. It functions in such a way that God's presence and power is given in immediacy, and this immediacy there's the deepest of encouragement. Like the apostolic, the prophetic sparks the ministry of the kingdom. 
and may foretell into the future as much of Hebrew scripture prophecy does, or may foretell in the, in the present, the, the very presence of God himself. So it may, it may say, hey, this is what's coming, and it can do that prophetically and into the future. It may also speak to right now. It's a ministry given by the Holy Spirit. There are some who have a particular gifting here, and they're to train all of God's people. The Bible def definitely um, you know, clarifies that there are those that are prophets, that we recognize as prophets. Um, and we don't have a clear system necessary for how we recognize that, and that might be just intrinsic to the work of the prophet, is that we're careful. Some traditions do identify prophets. Um, there's traditions in, in Brazil where Catherine grew up that you'll have that on your name tag, prophet. Um, that's been your office and identified as such. Um, we, don't, we don't have that in our tradition. Maybe we should. What we do have is a kind of organic realization that there are some who operate regularly in prophetic gifts that can train others in the prophetic gifting. So, um, for example, Deacon Howard Espy, who is here for Steve's ordination, I've realized he has the office of the prophet. I asked his bishop, who really is the one to confirm that. He said, yes, he has the office of the, the prophet. He's the one that had the four eagles dream I shared about on Tuesday. So we, so we, so we do see that. So there, these prophets others need to teach sons and daughters all to prophesy, Acts 2. And of course, Paul wants all Christians to prophesy, 1 Corinthians 14. Now, while the prophetic is often understood in terms of a spoken word or spoken prayer image or laying on of hands ministry, I also want to make clear that artists also have prophetic callings. Our musicians, our theater folks, our production artists, our dancers... The artist ministers God's word now in crucial ways. An artist who music, print, dance, paint has the gifting of making God's work, word and kingdom present now. I learned this from the writer Leanne Payne. She described my brother-in-law who is a worship leader as a prophet. And I hadn't understood it until she made clear it's, it's in music so often that the prophetic ministry takes hold. To hear an anointed choir, like our choir, sing the praises of God can be a prophetic encounter with the Word of God. To see an actor tell the great story or watch a dancer in the vigil create line and shape to depict the truth of who God is, is to receive a prophetic ministry. A revival of Word and Sacrament must develop artists who are abandoned to the Lord and ready to offer their gifts humbly and prophetically. This is why, this is why the artistic work in the church is more than adornment. It's prophetic ministry. So I often speak to our, to our artists as fellow preachers. You're proclaiming the word of God by, by, through music, making God's word present to us now. That's why it's so powerful. See, this is such a wrong understanding. And some people are like, oh, music's just powerful because it moves my emotions. Well, first of all, that's a whole massive confusion around the importance of emotions. That's, that's one problem with that statement. But their problem is, you're not understanding what's happening there is prophetic. It's not just emotional, although it's right for the emotions to be stirred. This isn't, some, this isn't some trigger that's happening and a manipulation of your feelings. That is a problem, those who understand or think about music that way. You have to understand what's happening in that moment is more than emotion. It's a prophetic ministry of God's word. Which is why it's so important that we worship with our open hearts. It's why I absolutely allow for contemporary music as well as sacred music and classical music all within our church. Why? Because I want our prophetic music to have a beautiful spectrum, right? A musical expression. It's so important. That's why it's so important I have to sometimes teach our people, don't you feel ashamed that you just felt emotional raising your hands in the air or jumping around? 
Don't you feel ashamed? You received a prophetic ministry right now. That wasn't just some emotional experience that you had. We have to be really careful, by the way, as you're leading small groups, as you're leading ministries, some of you will lead churches. You have to protect your people from those who would speak into their experiences that are prophetic as if they were somehow something sentimental or manipulated. We have to be really careful about that as shepherds and teach our folks that, that what happens in the arts when they're under the authority of the word and in the church, what happens in the arts in your own soul when you receive that as a prophetic ministry. And our artists are prophetically ministering as well. And that helps to help our artists also. And our artists need that, by the way. Because obviously, our artists are always in a, it's like, it's a challenge, you know, because, I mean, this is something, that, because the culture just desperately needs arts and still has some acceptance of some arts, right? So for an artist, you're like, ha, ah, like, like, how do I learn from the culture and take from the culture and, and gain from the culture its commitment to the arts? And yet, and yet, how do I also reject its idolization of some artists and then its denigration of other types of artists? Um, how do I live within that world and not pursue vainglory and yet at the same time understanding? So it's like they give status to some artists, but it's a worldly status. So in some ways, we have to also, as we teach our artists, is you have a status. You have a prophetic ministry. That's your place. And that's your ennobling. You don't need that cheap ennobling, that false ennobling. Okay. When there is not the prophetic ministry being catalyzed, there's an absence of immediacy and closeness to the Word of God. The Word of God may be taught, but there's an absence of immediacy and closeness. That's how you know the prophetic is not in operation within a tradition. The evangelistic. The Apostle Luke described Jesus' ministry with great clarity. He came to seek and save the lost. You all know that verse. Luke 19.10. The ministry of the evangelistic is to catalyze conversions. The evangelist, and in their Catholic ministry, he or she wants nothing less than conversions. They want, I mean, I, I, Billy Graham called his, his magazine Decision. Of course he did. He wanted to see people decide for Jesus. I will receive Jesus into my heart or I won't. The evangelist pushes toward decision, pushes toward conversion in whatever different forms and in cultures they work and ultimately if there's an evangelistic call they want to see people convert to the kingdom of god into the life of jesus now this can happen through individuals converting in close relationships and some evangelists have that kind of relational gift this can happen through evangelistic cultures that are created in churches see the incredible long-standing power of alpha where it created an evangelistic culture in the church this can happen through outreach services where the goal is to preach the gospel and call for a decision to follow jesus the evangelistic ministry often confuses the rest of the body of Christ, though. So the body of Christ goes, I don't always get evangelists. They make me uncomfortable sometimes. And evangelists have a kind of ambivalent relationship with the church, often. Because evangelists are often drawn to communities outside the church. And for whatever reason, whether it's a fair or an unfair allegation on the evangelist's part, they feel like the church can't bless that. The church doesn't bless that. And they often are right that the church becomes suspicious of them. Or they become worldly. Well, the evangelists say, no, I'm in the world. That's where I want to be. Evangelists get very frustrated if they can't get time with people far from God. They feel very constrained and very held back. But then the church gets confused by that. Often evangelists are students of culture. And so they can be seen as being too worldly as a student of culture. When actually what they're trying to do is understand culture. Now, in the same way that the artist has to work out this tension as a prophet, right? The evangelist has a lot of tensions to work out here. 
And they have to work it out under the authority of the church. First what? Apostles. Evangelists must, like prophets, must be submitted to the apostolic ministry. And in our tradition, the embodied apostolic ministry of, apostles, of, of bishops and of priests. But boy, that bishop or priest must also understand that the evangelists must be released. They must be blessed. They must be named. They must be told, go spend far more time there than here. We tease Father Matt. Where is Father Matt? Where is the guy? Well, we've said to him, please don't spend too much time in your office, which he is glad not to do, <laughs> right? Please be at Two Brothers where you work and have evangelistic ministry and conversation. That's part of who God's made you to be. Uh, others of us, we're here a lot. Others of us are not here as much. And I actually think we have a lot more growing and developing of this reality. When we send our church planters out, they don't have church buildings. They don't have offices. And in a way, that's an incredible gift because they are out all the time engaging in the culture. Their hunger is to build a bridge from the church to local contexts and from local contexts to the church and just to be that bridge within local contexts, always. Like the prophets, they must be under the authority of the church. But it's the, authority, the church who must understand their mission to invite and to convert. I watched this happen beautifully a few years ago. Uh, we had uh, a couple, and uh, Kevin and Heidi, and Kevin came to Res. I did my opening statement back then with Building a Sanctuary Transformation Announcement Time, and you know, I know our folks are always like, he says that every week, but Kevin never heard that because he was new. And he went, Building a Sanctuary Transformation. I can't believe he just used that word. I'm obsessed with transformation. Wasn't a born-again believer, had a good, solid Roman Catholic background that really blessed him. Is this place about transformation? Huh. Starts to visit Res regularly. Goes through Alpha. Utterly gives his heart to the Lord. He and Heidi totally convert. He's an evangelist. He's got a catalytic gift. So what does he do? He's a chiropractor. So without going through all the, you know, all the tormented, how can I handle this? What do I do about this? He just started sharing his faith constantly with his clients. It was his own private practice. He didn't work for somebody else. He knew that might be a risk, but he couldn't help it. He was an evangelist. He was catalyzing conversions and catalyzing conversations about Jesus constantly within his chiropractic practice. At one point, he also said, because he still wanted just to reach as many people as possible and bless the church as well, he said, anybody from Rez can just come and I'll take care of them. I mean, nobody does stuff like that. But he had been so stirred by the Lord and he had an evangelist to call. He just wanted to reach and bless as many people as possible. Great picture. So he catalyzed his work environment as a place for conversion. He did the same thing at Resurrection. Losing him, they moved to North Carolina where he took another job, has been a very significant loss for Resurrection and his evangelistic gifts. All right, let's look at the builders. The, the builders, for sure. Shepherding. Okay, as the apostolic ministry catalyzes larger cultures, the shepherding ministry builds singular communities, okay? So think larger cultures, ecosystems, then think singular communities. The shepherd and the shepherding impulse, the shepherding intuition is, how can I just pour in right here? Now, by the way, shepherding and apostolic can be together. I'll, I'll explain this. So don't start thinking us one or the other. You can have both, and you can learn both. Um, but the, shepherds, the shepherding impulse when they're shepherding is, I want to build here. I want to be here. I want to be a part of this work. The passion of a shepherd is expressed in daily 
and weekly work of building a kingdom community in the church. The shepherd has the ability to say, I have an intuition of understanding what happens by day-by-day faithfulness. That's how a shepherd is wired. I don't have to get a big, big win. I'm just really glad I had a really good coffee with this person and helped them get one more step toward the Lord. I just built into their lives. Like the shepherd takes great joy from some of those smaller, simpler things. They appreciate incremental life, the shepherd. They understand, um, a shepherd will understand, he or she will understand why good church meetings matter. Shepherds lead really good meetings. I think I may have Steve Williamson come and actually teach about how to lead a good meeting. It's such an important skill that nobody ever teaches anybody how to do. Um, they understand that good church meetings really, really matter. Um, this was great. Amy was mentoring and training Kevin Sheehan as our children's shepherd, our children's pastor. And she said, that first meeting you have when you gather all of your leaders together for the first time, I guess late August or early September, only whenever, whenever that was, like just gathering all the key res kids leaders together for, for Sunday morning ministry. She said, maybe like it's like 60 or 70 leaders. She said, you better have at least 90% of those folks there. That will tell you if, if they're with you or not. That kind of incremental meeting. And he did. And he ran that meeting really well. Well, Shepherd understands Amy was training him so well, and Kevin's got great shepherding instincts anyway, how much those meetings matter. They understand that. And they understand that you build something one brick at a time. That's so beautiful. I love the shepherding gift. I just respect it so much. My brother is just a shepherd of shepherds. Such a gifted shepherd. And he understands and actually has this serenity that it's one coffee at a time. It's one meeting at a time. It's one sermon at a time. But if you will do that faithfully, day in and day out, you will see things far beyond what you yourself could ever build or grow. Shepherds learn the gifts of people. What a shepherd does is they okay, well, if I'm going to build, I've got to build with something, because a builder like to build with materials, and the materials I have are my people. And the materials that my people have are their giftings. They're five M's, their spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. So shepherds become amazing gifting sleuths. They're looking for clues all the time. They're like, they're like, they're like the Sherlock Holmes of charisms, right? So they're, so they're, they're just, so I mean, they, you know, they've got, you know, kind of the old, you know, old school, like, you know, detective with the magnifying glass. They're like, well, what's in Magnuson? Like, I, that's like, my job is to learn what God is magnifying in him. And then how can I bless him or how can I build teams as your, as your church grows that can make sure he gets where he will flourish in the work of building the kingdom of God? Shepherds love that stuff. They love to know that, and, 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 that, and they just, they're just drawn to that. Um, for the shepherd, they feel success when they can see all five M's flourishing in the context of a local church. A shepherd's like, oh, this is awesome. We're not just a teaching church. We're not just a pastoral church. We're not just a prophetic church, but we're apostolic and evangelistic. That's what a shepherd loves in a singular community. The, the, the apostolic's going, how can I create lots of churches or lots of ministries or lots of different interacting, you know, um, Conferences and everything else where all this is happening. That's what the, the apostles like. I want to, you know, you know. The shepherd's like right here, right here, and all the stuff within right here. They love that. 
they often settle in. Now, some shepherds can be called to different churches. Um, there's no, you know, necessarily that. But, but most shepherds, and, and, and generally you, you'll see, and this is one of the strengths of the evangelical world that I'm really thankful for, is that a lot of folks have a vision for being in one place for a long time. And having had the joy of shepherding one church for 20 years, I will say there is so much for the kingdom that you can get done through incremental ministry if you'll shepherd over a long duration of time. So we encourage in our diocese that shepherds stay for a duration. Um, but, but we're not legalistic about it. But some traditions, for example, move folks every five to seven years. There's several types of traditions that move folks five to seven to nine years. Um, I actually think that, think that has a, an element to it that moves against the shepherding charism. Um, it's also because usually, by the way, if you're a shepherd, you're going to get your first major crisis in your church. Church planting, this is true for, definitely true if you're coming into an already existing church. About between years four and seven, you often get your first major crisis um, as a shepherd. And people saying, no, I don't agree with the vision. No, I don't agree with you. No, I don't like you. And I'm going to see if it's going to be me, me or you. Um, that's very, very common, by the way. It comes in different forms. So part of me goes, man, a shepherd's got to get through that initial battle that comes in almost everybody's ministry, get on the other side of that, and then there's really good work to do after, once you're through that. They understand that their tools as a shepherd include biblical preaching and teaching. That's one of their key tools. Compelling vision communication. Daily prayer. Walking in the supernatural. Knowing how to design and collaborate with vision-driven budgets. That's not just local church shepherd, but anybody that's involved in any kind of building, any kind of a ministry. And that could be part of fundraising as well. How do you design and collaborate on a vision-driven budget? You know, one of the tools are teaching the people of God generosity. When these tools are in place, they build churches, they can plant churches, they can plant other churches. Okay, teaching, the teacher. So as the shepherd builds community and is, is kind of focused on that singular community, the teacher builds ideas. The teacher's a builder. He or she has got the, you know, the, the, the sleeves you know, rolled up and they're, they're, they're building this. How can I build an idea? How can I build a teaching? How can I build a lecture? How can I build a Bible study? How can I build a disciple relation, discipling relationship where ideas can be built, developed, designed, set in, and then completely released? Like a kind of powerful time-released capsule. It's all put together. It's all clearly developed. It's handed over, and then it just releases with all kinds of incredible benefit. The teacher loves to build these things. The teacher loves to write a book. The teacher loves to, you know, develop new concepts. Teachers love to build curriculum whereby a whole spectrum of teaching can happen where you're just building these things with ideas. And, of course, in this case, if, if Ephesians 4, it's gospel ideas. Ideas that, once they're received, explode in the heart and the mind to bring transformation. Teachers build with words. Teachers build with images. Teachers build with outlines. Teachers build with logic. Teachers employ the, the importance of sequence. Teachers understand metaphor and simile. Teachers understand narrative and story. Teachers love text. They love to work from text. 
What's happening in this text? How can I be a servant of this text? That, that motivates a teacher. Teachers love to take people on a journey. They love saying, I want to start in A, and I want to take them through Z. I want to take them on a journey. Teachers love that. I mean, there's a few things I love more as a teacher than coming up with a sermon series and go, I want to just teach our people through this idea, you know? Right now, for me, like, what grabbed my heart this summer was the provision of God. You know, Yahweh Yaira. It just grabbed my heart this summer. I thought about it all summer long. I was like, I want to just teach our people about God, our provider, how deeply biblical it is, how it's central to the reality of the gospel. So I thought about it all summer. I worked on it all summer. I built it, you know, built it, built it, built it. My text, what, my outlines, what stories I might use. Um, then you rebuild it, right? Teachers also rebuild things. Sometimes they, they build too much or they, like, they tinker too long, right? It's like, oh, that's not quite exactly what I want. Um, but they love to build this stuff. The teacher absolutely believes in the power of God's word. They are not just a student of the word. They are a student of the teachers of the church throughout the centuries. Teachers, if they're good teachers, are always learning from other teachers. Teachers' curiosity drives them. Teachers are very curious by nature. Like, one of their great building tools is curiosity. Like, one of the gifts of a teacher is they come up with a great question. That's a great teacher, is they come up with questions. And they come up with questions that actually connect with the heart. Uh, the master teacher of our age in the church is Tim Keller. What a master teacher. Just listening to Tim Keller is an incredible joy. And man, can that guy just, just come up with the question that is so important and so germane um, to the human heart. He just is an incredible question understander and then question responder. And he anticipates the questions that we're going to ask. And then he teaches on them before you could even ask them. So he had this deep satisfaction as one of his students to go, man, that really does itch, and I didn't even know it yet. It's an incredible teaching gift. It's building questions that need to be answered as part of the teaching gift. So they're always going to be searching for, I don't know, a hip-hop song fragment that they heard. Oh, that might be helpful. A painting they see at the Art Institute. An exquisite line of poetry. Teachers are like these magnets for how can I build a teaching? And they're putting all this stuff together. They want any worthy aid that helps them teach the fullness of the gospel. Okay, let's talk about catalyzing building together now. While these two large areas of ministries can collaborate well within a church or movement or an individual, they can also be an absolute open field for rivalry and distrust. Apostolic leaders must create space for both catalysts and builders. Pastors must call all five ministries into fullness. Teachers must be able to articulate the strengths and the qualities of each of these five ministries. If, generally speaking, catalysts are driven to get it out and builders are driven to get it right. That's kind of be my, just a general distinction. Catalysts, get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out, get it out. Right? Builders, get it right. Get it right. Get it right. Right? All right. Um, then they have to learn to serve each other. That's, that's why they're so important to each other. Because why get it out if it's not right? But why get it right if you never get it out, right? And, and I know this seems, again, very simplistic, but I'll tell you how many meetings I've been in, right, where the catalysts are dying. Like, ah! Because we had, to talk, we had to talk about this again because the builders are like, yeah, it's not quite perfect, you know? Generally, catalysts are not perfectionists, right? Generally, they're just like, it doesn't matter. Let's just, let's just get something done, right? Um, but at the same time, what you've got with the builders that's so important is, again, when we're talking about the gospel, you better know what you're talking about. 
And you talk about shepherding people's souls, right? Catalysts left to themselves, they're just like, let's just start all this incredible stuff. Who's getting shepherded? Who's actually getting formed? And, and who's there in five years, right? So this dynamic is super important to the future of all the meetings we'll have in ministry. Because you'll watch it even, you'll watch it in a brainstorming conversation, you'll watch it all the time. We have to get it out as much clarity as possible, and we have to get it right only to the degree that's in accordance with the Word of God and not stuck in a kind of perfectionism. Now, each ministry must also understand the way in which they can come to believe a falsehood, that their ministry is the most important or the most needed. Okay, so every one of these five M's has a kind of falsehood that they can buy into. Let, let me go through this. The apostolic ministry can be tempted by the isolation that comes from being out in front and being sent. They can be tempted by the isolation and slip into a smug arrogance that they're the only ones who truly understand the missional nature of the church. No one else gets it. The apostolic often thinks in terms of contrast. We're doing this, we've seen this, no one else understands us. And you can feel that in the apostolic. It's obnoxious. And I've been very guilty of it. I mean, I'm apostolic and shepherding, so I actually have literally these internal discourses within myself all the time. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, am I smiggle or, you know, am I golem? It's like, ah! Um, back and forth. The prophetic ministry can feel easily marginalized by others because they often make disconcerting statements or they say things that are a little out there. Um, it's like, what? You know, okay, like, you know, in our culture, it's like, whenever someone speaks prophetic, people are always like, oh, yeah, I get it. But it's actually important sometimes to go, I don't still get that. I don't know what that means. Um, and that's, but that's hard for the prophetic. So it makes them feel like, ah, no one gets what I'm talking about. So they can actually, in that place of insecurity, fall into judgment of others. Why won't they live their lives in full clarity for the gospel? I am for crying out loud. I'm taking hits. I'm seeing visions. And so the prophetic can feel quickly marginalized. And, the, and, and because actually prophets were called to bring judgment, as part of actually the prophet's call, they can become judgmental. The evangelistic. The evangelists can feel deeply misunderstood by the church, and they can allow kind of bitterness. For evangelists, bitterness can come into the heart. And they find that they're often lambasting the church for that church's refusal to break free from their cul-de-sac ways. So the evangelists, again, like also have an ambivalent relationship with the church, or even in, in just a, just like, I'll do this without the church. The church always gets in the way, or the church always, always fumbles the ball. I have to do this without the church. And they can get into a kind of bitterness and, and, and a sense of, if it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. The shepherd. The shepherd can succumb to the numbing exhaustion. For shepherds, exhaustion is a constant specter in, in, in his or her ministry. The daily pressures. Remember how I talked about shepherding is incremental? And shepherding has to do with that. Well, that's also exhausting. Because you're always in it. It's like being a mom or a dad, back to my teaching last week. And that's really exhausting. For shepherds, it can feel like, I never get out of this. I never get free from this. Shepherds have escape fantasies all the time. They're always thinking, what else could I do? I've told you guys, right, that my brother and I, at the end of every summer, was like, okay, so what was your summer escape fantasy? You know, um, what would you go do if you weren't doing this? Shepherds are just kind of like, it's just like, huh. And, but what can happen is they can become very critical of other people's success. Because so often in shepherding, you don't think you're succeeding. 
with the apostolic, it's like these high stakes, like something goes really, really well or doesn't go very well at all, but you kind of know it because you're, you're catalyzing bigger things and you're seeing this. For shepherds, they often feel like it's so incremental. Do I ever see success? And when someone else gets success, it can be very hard for the shepherd to not become critical of that person. Shepherds can get very self-righteous about all the small things they do well because they're just trying to have some marker for what they are doing well. Teachers. Teachers can be absolutely overwhelmed by other people's ignorance and their apathy, and their apathy to get better and to, be, to learn better. They can just be overwhelmed. It's like, you don't know that? You, like, you are like a magnet like me pulling in everything I can possibly learn about everything? How could you not be that way? How could you not be a magnet? You know? Um, they're utterly overwhelmed by it at times. And people's apathy towards learning or education just makes teachers crazy. Apathy makes them crazy. And teachers can escape into pride. I was like, okay, they may not be, they may be ignorant, but I'm not. <sighs> what a relief. So glad I'm not ignorant. And teachers often have a sense that they're never fully appreciated. They often feel like no one really knows what I do. They think I get up and I do this teaching or this lecture or this sermon, or I build this curriculum, and that that's something that anybody could do. Because a really good teacher makes it look really easy. Which is one of the kind of downsides of being a good teacher is people are like, oh, yeah, thanks. That's great. Appreciate it, right? I'm like, you know, the whole idea of probably bringing an apple to your teacher is probably some teacher somewhere back in like the 1700s said, I'm going to create this whole myth about bringing an apple to your teacher so I get some appreciation somehow, <laughs> right? And then from there on out, apples have been given as, you know, Christmas ornaments to teachers, you know, through the generations. I'm sure you have several. Um, if you didn't, you should have, Dr. Magnuson. Um, but they can really get stuck in a sense of, I'm not appreciated. Okay, so each ministry, each M has needed strengths, and yet each carries great challenges. We desperately need each other, and we need to be humble enough to admit our secret sins around our particular areas of ministry. We need to know what they are, we need to be able to name what they are, and they go, whoops, I'm falling into that again. So these, these work... They're ministries. I mean, you know, it's, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this for Chad's benefit. They're not personality testing. Um, they're really not. They're, they're, it's not. This isn't an exam that you take. I, I actually took one one time, and I, it kind of helped me. But these are ministries. These are works of the Spirit. These are works of the church. So I think the best way to come at this is not to give you an evaluation, but I actually think for you to just work with this. As a teacher, I've tried to build an idea for each of these for you. I've tried to kind of say this is what I think plays out more from the scriptures based on Ephesians 4. So now what I would like you to do is a couple of things. One is, what are the giftings God's given you right now? By the way, these can totally change, by the way. These are dynamic. So I'm not even going to lock you in and say, from the rest of your life, you are this. And I'm only going to relate to you like you're prophetic. You're only a prophetic. You can't be the other, any of the other four. And forever ever, and ever, that's your leading ministry. It does not work that way. It does not work that way at all. Um, when I was here at Resurrection and I was serving in InterVarsity, I never felt like I had a vision gift. I felt like I had no vision gift whatsoever because my, my, my priest, William, had all, had all the vision. And I was like, I don't vision like that. I don't have that gift. Then for years, I shepherded. I mean, what I did at Res was flat out shepherding and teaching. I built Res day by day, you know, moment by moment. But then as Res grew and began to plant churches, I didn't know what the apostolic even was. I had never studied it, but I began to like, realize something was happening in my ministry. Then I'm elected a bishop six years ago, and then I go, I don't know what this is. 
I've had hardly any role models of bishops, except for John Paul II, my mentor. I never had a chance to meet him. I just read all of his stuff. So it's like, ha, ha, what do I do? So I had to go learn the apostolic. I had to understand it. And I began to realize I'm being gifted at the apostolic. I mean, it was almost like putting on something, you know, putting on the Holy Spirit. And I was like, I'm gifted. And, I, and by the way, and I need to be gifted in the apostolic because now it's my charge. So I didn't do that for 20 years, right? So this is dynamic. This moves and flows. So A, you know, what do you feel like is just giftings that God has given you? When I taught on this, did you go, yeah, I connect with that. Two, what's God giving you to do right now in your ministry? Which may or may not line up totally with what like God's given you overall. Three, um, what are your struggles operating in one of those M's? What are your struggles? Maybe it's what I've articulated, something else that I didn't articulate. And I can learn from you, and like a teacher, I want to use it later. Um, but, but, you know, what, 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 what is it that you're struggling with? And then, um, what is it, pick, pick one of the M's that you aren't particularly strong in, and just write a sentence about how important that M is, in your own words, to help build the unity that we need. 